Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. In an era where you can hop on Twitter and know exactly what's eating Donald Trump and how he might legislate against it, it's easy to forget how soft power shapes politics around the world. Jesus Christ, when he organizes, the way he puts the organization together, he makes it invisible. When you look at your body, you don't see your liver and your muscles and your brains hanging out. What he did is he put the finest organization and he put a beautiful skin over it. When you look at the mafia, they also use the same type of organization. Everything visible <coughs> is transitory. Everything invisible is permanent and lasts forever. The more you can make your organization invisible, the more influence it will have. That's Doug Coe, who is one of the most influential men in Washington, D.C. and around the world. As head of the family, a secretive organization that focuses their message on Jesus and nothing else, Coe oversaw decades of prayer meetings, including the National Prayer Breakfast, which frequently included warlords, despots, fundamentalists, and members of the U.S. government. In his 20s, writer Jeff Charlotte joined the family while writing a book about religion and soon discovered the surprising extent of the organization's reach. His reporting was first published in the March 2003 issue of Harper's, and additional information about the family's influence, including the C Street scandal and Uganda's Kill the Gays bill, was chronicled in additional articles and two books. Now, Netflix has adapted the story of quiet but pernicious abuse of power into a five-part documentary titled The Family. I spoke with Charlotte and director Jesse Moss about The Family, biblical capitalism, and religion in American public life. So, Jeff, you've written so much about the family, the organization, but the first book you wrote about it, titled The Family, doesn't start the way the series does, which is with a memory of the death of your mother. Why did you two decide to start there? And then maybe you could get into this larger question of how do you transform something that is such a huge topic into a totally different medium? Yeah, well, I knew that I wanted to try to start the story with the, the, the larger way that Jeff opens the family, which is his, his experience coming to live at Ivanwald and not knowing exactly what this world was, but coming to understand it in some dimension and then unraveling that further into the book. And I thought, what a great way to draw an audience it doesn't know anything into our story the way Jeff did. And if we could find a way to translate that. And that was how we built out the concept for the first episode was really to take those chapters or chapter from Jeff's book and which was so vividly written and sort of ready to adapt on the page. Um, it was kind of a, for me, a no brainer. And, and fortunately, Netflix and Jigsaw, uh, the production company, really got behind that vision. But specifically, the story about Jeff with his mother when she passed away, you know, he, that was a, something just came up in conversation and he hadn't of course written about that in the book, but this question of deliverance versus salvation. And when Jeff told me that experience as a young man, I, I thought kind of instantly here is a way to frame this conversation. And Jeff provided some very powerful images, but he fortunately allowed us license to dramatize that particular moment and the comic book that the young boy Jeff, young, 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 very young Jeff reads is also sort of 
frames that conflict between good and evil, and that's a motif or a theme that is developed, of course, through through the series. So, you know, it was, I guess, a flight of fancy, but I think one of the narrative strategies that I felt empowered to to try with the story. And what was it like for you to turn this completely accidental experience you had that has become such a huge part of your life and, you know, a huge part of your work? Like what, thinking of it in terms of visuals or deciding what's what is relevant, what should be an episode, what should maybe be held back? I mean, I have to say, when Netflix approached me with this idea, I, I was pretty skeptical. I, I, I didn't think it would work. And in fact, you know, I had I had optioned the books twice before to companies that shall not be named. And one wanted to make just sort of a, you know, a drama, a fictional drama. And and one wanted to make a comedy. Um, and <laughs> that is a missed opportunity. Yes. Um, and uh, um, and I thought actually the most difficult thing would be a documentary. But what I was really excited, I remember actually when I first met Jesse and uh, sitting down and because I was wary of I, what I really did not want was a standard investigative documentary, as wonderful as some of that work is, that didn't reflect what I think we needed to experience to understand the depth and power and and, and strangeness of, of, of this group. And Jesse showed me a selection of films, and Jesse, you might remember the names of them right off the top of my head, I don't, that immediately sort of established, established this incredible breadth of visual vernacular and storytelling possibilities. And I think uh, I remember Jesse talking about we, we have to find our own nonfiction language for this. And part of that included dramatization, which I really like also, not only because it's a way of telling the story, but I think when we are, we're talking about faith and the faith of others, uh, we're always engaging, um, you know, the, the, the too often quoted Joan Didion line, you know, stories we tell ourselves in order to live. But we need to have that sense that this is a story that's being told. There's lots of really rigorous reporting in this series and, and I think in the book and so on. But in just talking about, first of all, what does it feel like to be drawn into this movement? That's a story. And, and so it was sort of thrilling and also deeply disconcerting, as I suppose anybody who's ever seen themselves played by an actor. <laughs> and, and, you know, I saw the death of my mother in, in this thing. And that's not my mother. It's not what she looked like. It's not supposed to be what she looked like. It was sort of a way of combining all these sort of elements from biography that 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 make this person who might end up exploring this story. Jesse, what were the, could you talk about the films that you showed Jeff and like what was sort of your underlying criteria there? Boy, you put me on the spot here. Um, I think I might need to go back to my my email. Um, I mean, I. You mentioned one earlier today. I think. Um, what was it? Uh, the one that had a lot oh, of text it's Power in it. Of, Power of Nightmares by Adam Curtis, which is a, a documentary, which I, I so I have a visceral memory of watching that film in New York in the theater, and feeling like I was falling off my chair. Like, I just could not believe it. And he had found a way to tell what was on some level a familiar story or a known story, the rise of neoconservatism and the rise of radical Islam, but as kind of a parallel and intertwined narrative. And it was just a brilliant vision. And Adam Curtis has a very distinctive voice as a storyteller. And I think it was more 
not so much Adam Curtis's technique, but the feeling I had watching that film, which was like a world, a curtain was going up and I was seeing the world in a totally different way. And I, I wanted to try to summon that feeling. Now, far be it for me to, you know, Adam is a, uh, uh, he's really a magician as a storyteller and I'm, I'm, I'm but a, an apprentice, but I, I wanted to try to summon that spirit in this story if we could and to build it on, you know, these, these rigorous blocks of fact and reporting, um, but to take chances with the story, to trust our audience to come with us on that journey, to, to also convey some of that emotional and non-intellectual or non-rational experience that is, is you know, more about the matters of, of the heart or of, of faith. And I think in the decision to dramatize Jeff's experience as a young man, to really bring the audience in on a kind of ground level, uh, on a human level. And that's what I've done in the past as a more cinema verite filmmaker. And I wanted, look, I asked the family, I said, can I come and make a, essentially a cinema verite film at the Cedars? And of course they said, absolutely not. So having been denied that opportunity, I, I adopted a different strategy. There's this larger question of during the Bush years, how the evangelical right were these really powerful cultural boogeymen. So you had stuff like Jesus Camp, there was, you know, stuff in Aaron Sorkin shows where they were always the bad guys. And there was this idea that you need to be really afraid of them. But now they've kind of receded into the background and, you know, been replaced by other cultural boogeymen, bad or good or however you want to see that. But, you know, as the final episode argues, they're more powerful than ever with somebody like Trump in office. So why do you think that shift happened? You know, one of the things that fascinates me about the story of Christian conservative politics in the United States is the way in which we, as a society, and especially the media, we never get it. And this goes back to 1925 and the Scopes trial, which is the Scopes monkey trial over you know, whether or not to teach evolution in the schools. And I think if you ask most people, they'd say, oh, that was the trial where teaching creationism was defeated, which is not the case. The, the creationists won the trial, but they were widely mocked in, in the public. And it's, you know, even more complicated because they were kind of right. The creationists, I mean, creationism isn't right, but the textbook they were objecting to was a eugenicist textbook. It was the most horrific, you know, sort of deployment of evolution. But fundamentalism as a force in American life was declared dead after that. And if you go through the history of the press, it gets declared dead about every five to 10 years. You know, I started working on this material, published a first story here in Harper's in the midst of the Bush years, as you say, published the book in 2008, and Obama's elected. And everyone's like, well, well, who cares now? Because they're gone now, right? And here we are even at this moment. And as you say, it's a really interesting thing to say that they recede it's not the alt-right that elected Trump. It's the evangelical turnout in Michigan and Wisconsin, which was the best organized and biggest turnout for any president in history, far more than for W or for Reagan or, or for anyone else. And the question really becomes one of how does this movement endure even as its sort of public representation rises and falls? And I think you need to think of it as an avant-garde, that there's a popular front, that's what we see, the pulpit pounders. And then there's this avant-garde, the sophisticated elite that is in it for the long game. 
and they're ready to seize the moment when it's there. And this is the moment, even though, as you say, people aren't paying attention. The Christian right is. We read the Christian right press, and they said, we never thought we would achieve this much in America. This is it. This is the time. And there's a way in which Jesse in the, in the series is able to sort of suggest that. It's not all that kind of urgent. So many stories about the Christian right have been this sort of hysterical, the fundamentalists are coming, the fundamentalists. The real story is the fundamentalists are here and they've always been here. They're part of the American DNA. They shape what this nation is for better and worse. Well, it's funny because I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and there was this Christian organization at my school called Cell Group. Hmm. And then I graduated a semester early and I was temping and I happened to temp at the mayor's prayer breakfast. <laughs> Neither of those things were ever connected in my mind. I had no idea that they were part of this national movement until I read this book. Like there, And at the time, Cedar Rapids was like 123,000 people or less. Like it was, it's it's like this quietness and like this soft power and like the mafia comparison that they themselves make where they want to get their turf and they've got their turf. And it's been that way for a really long time. So yeah, I was, I was just struck by that, familiarizing myself with this and like watching the documentary be like, yeah, my life has kind of been Shaped Touch. by this. Yeah. I mean, that transformation, and, and I don't know, in Cedar Rapids, the mayor, good chance has nothing to do with this. On the other hand, that event is a direct offshoot of the small cell group that met in Seattle, Washington in 1935 with the express purpose of organize, crushing organized labor, which they saw as satanic. And they recognize that, look, if we can institutionalize prayer breakfasts, they invented the idea of prayer breakfast. It's kind of this weird, banal kind of like businessman's cult idea they're not going to go away. There's not going to be a mayor, a governor, a president who's ever going to say, no, I'm against prayer. Once you get that into the program, it's there. Now, the question is how to use it. Maybe in one city they don't particularly use it, and maybe in another, uh, you know, in some states it really becomes a potent political project at the national level. As we see in the series, it becomes a means for, as 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 the story appears, and I, I think it's the fourth episode. Jesse is uh, that of the Russian agent Maria Butina, who isn't so much infiltrating the national prayer breakfast. She's using it the way it was made to be used, and the family is helping her gain access to American power. Jeff, I'm reminded of the phrase you used in the interview: the evil of banality. And uh, th there was a time when this movement was known as the prayer breakfast movement. That's language that I think they stopped invoking. But certainly in the early days, right, of, of Rhee's organization, that's what it was known as. And there is it, certainly it's true in the national prayer breakfast today, a kind of front of banality. Right. But beyond that, it's deliberately bland. Yes. Beyond <laughs> that is where it gets interesting. But then you have somebody like Maria Butina come in and then it's like, wait, what? <laughs> She's like a sexy young Russian woman who likes to carry guns and... And a lot of it, you know, I mean, the prayer breakfast has a long, you know, who was Maria Butina's date was Alexander Torshin, this sort of Russian intelligence connected figure who was banned from the United States and was able to come in through the prayer breakfast. There's a long history of warlords, war criminals, uh, uh, death squad leaders coming to the prayer breakfast. I mean, it is a rogues gallery. They acknowledge this themselves, by the way, and they see this as a strength. They say, look, we are opening the doors to deal with these people. And you can almost imagine 
you can almost sort of and I think the power of the, the, the series is like, oh yeah, that's great. We should we should we should talk to those people until you wake but wait a minute, what are you saying? There are conversations that really function just as a form of legitimization and um, those are the kind that they specialize. There's not been any accountability. They weren't inviting Maria Butina to say, could you carry this message uh, back to a Putin and say, look, we've really got to stop killing journalists now. That's not the goal. Right. Given the level of sort of normalization that has taken place because this has been going on for so long, to what extent are things like the prosperity gospel or like biblical capitalism, which are totally about the family's belief and like predestination and power and all this sort of thing that may or may not be scripturally uh, supported. For people who aren't as familiar with the Bible, why are these such controversial ideas and how have they been normalized besides things like, you know, having a cell group at a high school? I mean, the prosperity gospel develops independent of the family. And the prosperity gospel, this idea that you can pray your way to wealth and that wealth is a, is a blessing, is really part of what I think of as the popular front of American fundamentalism. But biblical capitalism, that's them. That's a part of our lives. And, and those not familiar with sort of evangelical circles, that's a big part of the teachings. If you're wondering how can we take you know, the Christian Gospels and come up with this message of, of sort of greed and, and wealth, it's this idea that capitalism is basically laid out in the Bible. This is wildly ahistorical. Adam Smith did not feel like he was receiving revelation from, from God and so on. It's an approach to religion that sort of looks around the world as it is, looks around at roughly the distribution of power as it is, and says, this must be ordained by God. Now, how do I go and find the biblical proof text to justify what I have, rather than to challenge me to maybe do more in my community? Another thing that the family, they don't call themselves a Christian organization. As the original article that was published in Harper's says, it's Jesus plus nothing. And the way the family understands Jesus is really unlike any other church. The Reverend Eric Williams uh, just says he's kind of a mascot for the family. So why did the family choose to focus on Jesus as opposed to God? God who could possibly fulfill some of the same functions as like excels at everything, is a father, is kind of a guy, couldn't be seen as a guy, a guy's guy. There's a historical reason and there's a contemporary reason, and they're both insane. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, at the time that they were doing this in 1935, Bruce Barton, who was sort of one of the fathers of modern day advertising, wrote a mega bestseller called The Man Nobody Knows. And it's this guy who is at the head of a corporate board, and he's got 12 guys on the member of the board, and he is a hard-charging executive, and this man's name is Jesus. Um, and this was this reinvention of a person. You needed a person who you could recognize and, and relate to. And that was a sort of the idea then. It evolved into this astonishing kind of theology that Jesus is somehow central to all religions. And one, in fact, senior family leader explained to me. He said, well, this is, it's, you know, it's not Christian. It's just because Jesus is at the heart of, every, of all the big religions. And I said, okay. 
Buddhism? He goes, well, that's not a religion, so that one's easy. Uh, and same with Hinduism. That, 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 we just scratch that. Okay, those are demonic. But what do we got? We got the, 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 the monotheisms. And he says, Christianity, sure. Islam, well, Jesus is a, a prophet. That, okay. And he says, in Judaism, you know, he says, Jesus is sort of the big finale of your book, right? And I'm a Jew. And I said, no, no, no. Jesus is not in our book. And this was this was a man who was counseling congressmen power. He says, no, no, he comes in at the end, right? And I said, that's really a very dire way of looking at it. And and so there's there's a connection between those two things, between the banality of, you know, Jesus as corporate board leader and the illiteracy of someone who is leading this powerful ministry, not even knowing scripture, not even having that. It's this idea again that that really Jesus is as 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 you need to serve power. It's not it's not a Jesus who sharpens you. It's not a Jesus who who confronts you and and makes you question uh, the consolidation of power. It's not the social gospel in any way, shape or form. Save for the C Street scandal. To what discernible extent has your reporting or this documentary sort of impacted the family's behavior? And, you know, obviously the Internet existed when you were first starting this and you were afraid that they would Google you. And, but they didn't because they just assumed you were chosen. And that's fine. They're not, they're not very curious. They're no. not. No. <laughs> so they don't know their own history. I mean, this, you know, when I when I first published that Harper's article, I remember going back and talking to the guys I'd known. And they're like, they're like yeah, I didn't really know that. But. It doesn't make a difference to me. I mean, I said, are you disturbed to learn that, you know, this group was whitewashing Nazi war criminals? No, I didn't know it. Um, but yeah, there has been some, I mean, one thing, uh, you know, they have a flashy new website. Look, when I started this reporting and, and folks here in this office at Harper's know, they denied that they existed. We would try and fact check and they would say, no, there's no organization. When I, the book came out in 2008, NBC Nightly News said, okay, we're going to do a story. And they called them and they said, they said, no, there is no organization at all. NBC says, well, we're looking at your tax records. There's an organization. No, no, that's a mistake. Now they have a website. Now they acknowledge that, that they direct the National Prayer Breakfast, which they spent decades making appear as if it was a public event. I think that I have no way of knowing, but I look at the timing. Here comes this documentary, and here's a new website. That's a good sign. And there's been other little changes. And the big one, I think, was another Harper story that we did on their involvement in something called the Kill the Gays Bill in Uganda, which is exactly what it sounds like, death penalty for homosexuality, which was the direct product of their Ugandan branch, um, as it was the author of the bill explained to me. And... That bill did not end up passing. A lot of international attention came to it. And that was actually the first moment when they started to say, maybe we need to be a little less secretive. And, you know, if they want to do that and say, look, nothing to see, great. If they want to become more transparent, that's, that's a democratic contract. That's fine. And Jesse, when you were questioning, because there are members of the family, uh, active and inactive like Jeff is uh, in the documentary. So did you have a hard time kind of getting a straight answer out of these guys? I had a hard time getting any answers, let alone straight answers. Um, just to get access took, well, about a year to get some of the leadership to sit down and talk. I think they had to be convinced that this was a serious project. And we were able to work around the margins and get some people to open up to us and had very sincere 
conversations um, with people who are active in the group or inspired by Doug Coe. There were questions that they couldn't answer. Actually, I, we did go back to them and try to determine who was who currently occupied C Street. And they told us they have no relationship with C Street anymore. However, the tax documents tell a different story. So that's not true. I don't I don't know whether any members of Congress currently reside there. We, we discussed various uh, ways to try to figure that out, but, but we ended up not being able to. So um, actually, they had the hardest time answering questions about Jeff Charlotte. Uh, and, you know, it was we got we got some interesting answers uh, from Congressman, former Congressman Zach Wall. He spoke about C Street, uh, his time there. He talked about the organization as a whole and its attempts to modernize. We'll see if that that commitment bears out and uh, commitment to a diversification of leadership. Now, there's a question of who will who will take over now that Doug Ho has passed away. It's not clear I mean, I think the conversations we had did yield some real insight. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of Gannon Sims, who was at Ivanwald with Jeff, had a very different kind of experience there and is still very much inspired by and a part of this greater movement. And I loved talking to Gannon. <laughs> it was a really interesting conversation. And just the way he talked about that experience in contrast to Jeff's experience, I think was something I was oh, happy we could represent and, um, and share with the audience. Of course, uh, you know, they know how they've been characterized and they're defensive about that. And I think one of the reasons why they were so hard to convince to actually sit down and talk with us is I think they thought, you know, we were just going to paint them with a conspiracy brush. And, you know, I wanted to lead with the film I made previously, The Overnighters, which is about a Lutheran pastor in the North Dakota oil field. And, and really, I think, a powerful exploration of what it means to live by the teachings of Jesus in modern America. And I wanted to take that conversation and that complexity of that film and that sort of that profound question of sort of different views of faith and of these teachings and, and broaden the conversation. And I saw in the story of the fellowship an opportunity to do that. You know, I kept looking for the good works that they talked about. And they said, you know, show me, you know, invite me on a trip to Africa with you. I'd love to go. And it really, the, that kind of access was not forthcoming, unfortunately. If it's there, if the work is there, the access wasn't there to, for, to allow me to show it. Instead, I, I did get to go to the National Prayer Breakfast, got a ticket to go. Of course, most of us see the C-SPAN recording of the president's speech. You don't see the discussions in the days around the prayer breakfast it's, itself. That, that Those are the activities where someone like Maria Butina is doing her business. So there's actually much more to the event. And um, of course, they have a harder time talking about that. And you just mentioned C-SPAN, which is perhaps the greatest underutilized source of what is actually happening in Washington, D.C. <laughs> um, what decisions did you have to make about archival footage, say, of Trump? Because there's so much stuff of him. Did you try and use things that made a particular argument? Yeah, well, we, look, we knew Trump was going to be a, a small but very important part of the series. Um, and he ended up landing in the fifth episode, which makes a certain amount of sense. And that was kind of going back to a central question that motivated the project, like how to understand the religious rights embrace of this person and his policies, seemingly at odds with so much of what we think to be uh, Christ-like uh, or, um, you know, in lifting up the downtrodden, it's something 
something very opposite. And so uh, in the theology of the family, I think some explanation for that contortion that we see and um, whether that's out, you know, of kind of com- Christ-like compassion or raw political expediency, I'll leave it to the viewer to decide. But, you know, I loved actually, I was fascinated by Trump's faith and Jeff had this brilliant line distillation. You, Jeff, you, I think you described it as a sort of an unholy combination of it influence from his father, Fred Trump, Roy Cohn, and um, that a, a preacher of prosperity gospel. I'm forgetting his name. Um, Norman, Norman Vincent Peale. Yeah. yeah. Trump's Trump's Trinity. And, and he identifies it as such in his books. So the question of archive, you know, of course, there's a ton of, you know, you don't want to play into Trump's game of the reality TV spectacle. And um, there were some moments that were particularly choice, like, um, you know, pastors, uh, the, the, the president's faith advisory council laying their hands upon him in the Oval Office. I mean, how could we resist that moment? But but I, I love the the archive, not of Trump himself, but of Norman Vincent Peale. And sort of you, you kind of understand Trump on, on, on some level seeing that. Uh, and you, you understand the transaction that he's engaged in when you see him at the National Prayer Breakfast talking about The Apprentice season seven, right? And people look a little bit scandalized, but but actually no one really cares because everybody under, understands the transaction, the transactional game that's being played. President Deals. I guess the big thing that I keep coming back to is the idea of eschewing the label of Christian and how there's some plausible deniability built into the organization. And familiarizing myself with this story, it reminds me a lot of the uh, Nexium cult in some ways, when Keith Raniere, who was somebody who had started several multi-level marketing companies, had gone to jail for it, had signed a paper saying he would not start any more multi-level marketing companies, and then instead he created a cult, which operated basically like a multi-level marketing company. And the cult was not stopped, even though it was identified as a cult by several newspapers until there was some different type of law breaking where there was Ranieri's currently being tried for, I guess, sex trafficking. What is it about the United States that allows these things to go on as long as faith is a part of it? I mean, that's, I think that's really the, the, the sort of the fascinating question is, is perhaps, uh, uh, Jesse, you had, a, you had a great line when you were sort of saying, you know, when we look at the family and what it does is you have to ask yourself, is, is this naivete or, or, or cynicism? And the family's great achievement, I think you, you said, is, is really that they managed to make it both at the same time. And there is... What's interesting is when you report on the family's activities overseas, there tends to be much, much more candor, much more candor about the transaction, the art of the deal, what is expected. In the book, I write about uh, the Somali dictator, Saad Barre, who made a deal with Senator Chuck Grassley, who's your senator from Iowa to this day. And back then, Senator Grassley um, saw an opportunity uh, with Sadbari, who needed a new client, the Soviet Union. This was back in the Cold War, had dumped him, and uh, he was an unlikely prospect. He described himself as a Quranic Marxist. He had triptychs uh, around the country of, of, of Marx, Muhammad, and him. So is this not, not a come-to-Jesus guy, but he was as candid as anyone in the archive and saying, yeah, okay, I'll do this, and here's what I want in return. 
I want meetings with the president. I want uh, increased military budget. He also was meeting the chairman and joint chiefs with staff. And he says, I don't want a hands-off policy while I sort of crack down on, you know, this rebel group I have in this one part of the country. And and the answer was more or less done, done, and done. But in the United States, there's something interesting. I think some of the early people who've already, uh, you know, the critics who've already seen the series talk about the sort of the eeriness of Doug Coe, the leader, and how he seems so sincere. And there's a letter in the archives from Doug Coe to this dictator, Sadbari, well into Sadbari's brutal regime. And uh, I mean, it's a heartbreaking letter in the sense that Doug's, one of his sons, Jonathan, has, has died young. And he writes, he says, my, my son died today, and I want you to know how much he valued his relationship with you. And Sadbari, boy, is he candid, he writes back, he says, I never met your son. I, don't, I have no idea who your son is. Naivete or cynicism or both at the same time. I cannot believe that Co just was trying to play a con. I think he believed in it. And I think in the sort of the American faith tradition, there's this idea we get stuck at the edge of sincerity. And great, Co is sincere. Now, let's engage with questions. It's it's that whole idea of spiritual but not religious, you know, this idea that, that the d- deep distrust we have of institutions, which for all of their many, many failings, they do provide the Catholic Church for all its cover-ups and so on. But look, we see an argument taking place in the church about what is the faith, what is right. Are these priests who are being protected, is this the right thing? There is, There are, there are ways for that to happen. And uh, I think it is the particularly democratic American contribution to faith that we believe that everyone is. Um, there's something very Protestant about that, that everyone is, can meet God on their own terms. And there's something kind of lovely about that, but it's also something that does seem to make us astonishingly vulnerable to the con men when they come along. Jeff, I think that Mark Siljander really embodies that tension or, or, or contradiction in a way. I mean, you see him in a series we talk about. Mark tells us about going to Libya to, with Doug Coe to pray with Gaddafi. Well, they don't get to see Gaddafi. They get to see his foreign minister and it's, it's kind of an amazing story. So, you know, startling kind of innocence, naivete, idealism. I, I'm not sure, but breathtaking. And then on the other hand, you got Siljander really using the mechanism of the family to launder money for his own financial benefit, right? And he goes to jail for that. So, I mean, he's a perfect spokesman for the organization in a way. He wouldn't be the spokesman they would put forward, but I was lucky to have run into him at an elevator at the National Prayer Breakfast and ask him if he would talk to us. And I love I loved visiting with Mark. I mean, he just told some incredible stories. And the fascinating thing, though, is they don't drop him either. And they do drop people. They have a whole history of leaders who they're betting on. And once that leader is no longer a contender, that guy can't get his, his calls returned. I mean, that was actually a story I didn't tell in the book, but I collected a lot about was um, their involvement in the transition to South Africa. And this is an interesting story because it's actually something where they did affect something undeniably good. They had been backing the leader of the Zulus, a guy named Mangasudo Budalesi. At that point, everyone knew 
the end of apartheid was coming. Even Reagan knew it. Um, Reagan, whose South African liaison, was simultaneously on the White House payroll and the family's payroll, which is illegal, but there it was. And they were backing Budalese. Budalese, who I think you could fairly call without hyperbole a fascist. And Mandela won. And Budalese was preparing for civil war. And they did talk him down. And then he never heard from them again. He was no longer of use to them. And they immediately started saying, okay, look, who in Mandela's circle can we get close to? And again, it's that kind of naivete and cynicism. The naivete, which is to say, well, God has just called me here. And, or like Mark Siljander in the series, that guy is still useful to them. So even though that guy has actually, the family is not a conspiracy. People say, you're saying it's conspiracy theory. I'm like, page seven, page 10. It, it's not a conspiracy. They don't, there's my <laughs> go-to line. They don't break the laws. They make them, except for Mark Siljander. Mark Siljander is a conspirator. He was charged and convicted and served jail time for it. And yet he's still useful to them for his access to power. And they'll still work with him. That to me, you're right, Jesse. I hadn't thought of that. Is is sort of the equivalent of of Coe's tragic exploitation of his son's death for access to a killer. I mean, in some ways, maybe Doug Burley too. I mean, you could maybe it's what everybody embodies in in, in the organization. That level of innocence, cynicism, uh, idealism, and naivete, and 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 cold cold calculation. Maybe that's politics too. Yeah, we're just the suckers who can't maintain those two contradictory ideas in our head at once. <laughs> well, the the international angle, and you go to Romania, where there was a referendum on their constitution to define marriage between a man and a woman, which literally changing the constitution. And you would think that if it is all of these special interest groups from the U.S. giving a leg up, if not actual money, to these people who are pushing this very conservative agenda, that it might not turn out so well, but marriage equality is preserved. How much is the delay between the family sort of interest in a region and then things happening? Because I was just so fascinated, the idea that this has been a relationship that's been building. They've been sending people to Eastern Europe for a long time to sort of secure that block and, you know, referendums on changing the constitution. It's hard to say what the delay is because they are in it for the long game. I remember way back in whatever it was, 2001, 2002, when I was living at Ivanwald, uh, I learned about uh, Congressman Frank Wolf, a Republican from uh, Northern Virginia. And he was introduced to me as a sort of a member of the family, as someone, Romania is his special project. It's like his fiefdom, right? So that's a long long-term project. And it's worth saying, right? So people say, so you're saying they pull the strings? No, no, they don't always succeed. They very rarely, as an organization, and they'll say this, we don't lobby for anything. We don't tell you to do anything. What we do is we put people together. We talk to them about what scripture wants. Maybe we talk about biblical capitalism. Maybe we talk about moral values and so on. And, you know, and a sort of an unsettling echo of the way we as journalists and, and documentarians say, we just say, we, we just present it to you and we let you draw your own conclusions. Well, you know, keep in mind, it's a who's doing the drawing of conclusions. It's a small room full of, of elites making decisions, as the family puts it in this little 
phrase that they have used since the beginning, beyond the din of the vox populi, beyond the voice of the people. That's where they say you can hear God. If you're listening to democracy, you can't hear God. So, you know, in Romania, in, in Uganda, you look at, say, they have a lot of presence in Russia right now. Certainly they don't control Vladimir Putin. Well, Doug, Doug Burley talks about, yeah. yeah, for Doug Burley, that was a 50-year project. You see the, the, the effects of it long term. I did some reporting some years ago on Putin's anti-LGBT crusade. And what astonished me and talking to some of the very hard, hard right. I mean, their anti-LGBTQ activists are very literally murderers. And for some of the conversation, they would use English. They didn't even have Russian. I remember talking to one leader and he had a little bouquet of... Um, of flags of the old confederacy the american confederacy on his desk that had been a gift from his american christian rights supporters that's not the family per se that is the larger movement and the ways in which there's this export of culture war and doug burley with the 50-year vision is going to be the guy who facilitates that you say in the documentary and in the original article that it's based on that you got access to the family by just answering their questions very honestly and that you didn't know that much about investigative journalism when you began. So what did the experience of writing and researching the original story teach you about that skill? And how did it sort of influence your approach to future stories? Well, this is, all right, so this is the one criticism I have of Harper's, um, <laughs> uh, which is the subtitle of that story. And this was my first national magazine story, and it was my editor, uh, Bill Wasick's first national magazine story. We worked very hard on it. We did not have a lot of say, and Harper's at the time, um, and, and, and God bless Harper's in every way, really. I mean, the ones who have sort of been looking at this story um, put a, a, a deck on it deck is what you call a subtitle, Undercover Among America's Secret Theocrats. I was like, well, I wasn't undercover. I used my own name. I was invited by a guy who had known me for 12 years. I told him I was writing a book about religion in America called Killing the Buddha. You know, And this idea that there was a sort of this whole undercover romance that we have. I mean, I'm not James Bond. I'm 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 Inspector Clouseau. You know, I'm I'm I stumble literally stumble. Gosh, what are you guys up to? <laughs> and no kidding. And one night I asked if I could use the house computer. I remember, and you know, I think I sent an email, and they had just happened to leave open. And it was ridiculous. I just happened to leave open this page linking to the archive and that's not secret either they dumped 600 boxes of documents they just it was beyond their imagination that anyone could have issue with what they were doing that anyone could ask questions and they were so incurious about their own history themselves they couldn't imagine anyone else i mean that kind of jesus plus nothing that means not only sort of no accountability no theology it means no history it means it means no questions. And, you know, if Jesus plus nothing is your proposition and now you're trying to tell the story, okay, but what's being excluded by that? Well, you learn how to be an investigative journalist in doing that. And that meant going to the archives. Harper sent me to the archives. I had never done that kind of reporting before. I was, like Jesse was saying, you know, you love cinema verite. That's all I cared about at that point. And I still love that most. I just like to go and I'm just going to be with people and see what they do. And I understood. 
and I think this is the great achievement Jesse has also done in the series, the immersion, right? We talk about immersion journalism, or as Harper's once called it, submersion journalism. That includes the archive. If I want to understand your life, your life is partly comprised of paper. I have to go and read those letters, those documents, those memos, those receipts. That's all part of the story. And, you know, I was practicing this for some years before someone told me what I was doing was investigative journalism. I thought I was just immersing myself ever more deeply into that world. And then last question, Jesse. Uh, I have to kind of geek out a little bit and ask what it was like to work with Fred Elms, who is this legendary cinematographer who's worked with David Lynch and Jim Jarmusch, a lot of other people. So what was that uh, process like? Yeah, no, I'm happy to geek out for sure. Um, Working with Fred was amazing. And well, initially I was intimidated, but Fred is not intimidating. He's wonderful and a lovely guy and a great artist. And of course, I had no no hope that he would do something like this, but uh, because he was busy, uh, I think, coming off Jim Jarmusch's last film and in in high demand. Um, But but Fred is um, open-minded and I think likes collaborating with, I think, with new people. And so we presented the idea to him and he's in upstate New York, which is pretty convenient. We were shooting um, in Westchester and uh, we met and I said, look, this is kind of new for me, but I'd love to uh, work with you. And he was up for it. And uh, I mean, it was so, look, I mean, his work, I mean, going back to like River's Edge, right? And Eraserhead and like landmark films for all of us. And um, you know, you think Fred would be like kind of haughty and imposing, but he's really he's he's I think he's really committed to helping a director achieve his or her vision. And um, I felt that, you know, for someone like me to walk on set and feel like Fred was there as a collaborator was incredible. And I think for the actors to have someone of that stature, to have a, a, a crew with someone of that confidence, um, that's what I needed and wanted. And I feel very blessed and to work out a vision with Fred, you know. It was a very specific vision for how we wanted it to look, which was definitely not to kind of fake a documentary look, but but a much more classic and formal style. And also to give it some innocence. I mean, it's it's not, you know, we could have like taken it in a much moodier direction, but I think I wanted to, I wanted the audience to be drawn in as, in the ways that Jeff was. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. Produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 